Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you here in Omaha. I'm from Kansas City, Kansas City, Missouri, the north part of the town, and uh, it's a joy for me to be up here. We had Pastor Pat with us in April. He held a men's conference, and it was a delight to have him there. Uh, it's been a while. I think it was in 08 when I was here last, and it's, it's great to be back with you. When I do travel uh, on occasion like this, uh, I, I am reminded how how strange my, my last name uh, really is. You know, when you live with it, after a while, you just get used to it. But when you get around new people and they're, what is that name? What, how do you pronounce that? I've, I've been called junkie a few times in my life, and, um, but you get used to it. I was in Scotland one year and um, uh, with a professor of mine from seminary, and he introduced me to a friend of his who was from Germany, and he actually told me something interesting about my name. He recognized it immediately, and he said, that name comes, uh, that's high German. He said, uh, he likened it to, this kind of dates uh, me, but uh, he said, Yonke in Germany, he said, the Johnny Carson of Germany, his name was Yonke. So that really made me feel, feel I have a very popular name. In Germany, not here, but in Germany, it's a it's a name of royalty. So I'll I'll excuse you if you don't recognize that royalty and that prestige with this name. But uh, nonetheless, it is a delight for me to be with you this morning. And uh, I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter four. Hebrews four. The last time I was with you, I spoke from Hebrews six, and. Uh, I, I guess I got to do a little thinking if, if Pat continues to invite me once, maybe a year for the next 40 years, and I keep doing Hebrews, we'll just go right through the whole book of, of Hebrews over the next 40 years. Um, but I want us to look at a verse in particular, verse 12. It's probably one of the most well-known verses in the whole book of Hebrews. I want to look at it and then really look at it in the context of the verses around it, but Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Perhaps you learned that verse when you were in Awana or some other boys or girls club. I know I did. I've known that verse for many years. If you read any creeds or any statements on the Bible or any doctrinal statements that deal with the subject of Scripture, you are almost certainly to find Hebrews 4.12 referenced or footnote because it speaks so greatly about the Bible. But sometimes when verses like this are so familiar to us, we lose appreciation for it. We lose some of the preciousness Especially when you proof text verses so often, sometimes you miss the significance of the verse itself, certainly in its context. And what I want to do this morning is to look at this very familiar verse, verse 12, and I want us to regain, if we can, the preciousness and the joy and the beauty of what this text is is saying, and the way we're going to do that is by looking at this verse in context. I have never done that, really, Uh, and and when you look at this verse in context, I think it opens up and becomes a very rich and precious passage of Scripture. Well, the immediate context is certainly verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Striving to enter rest. Verse 11 really culminates the the focus of 
chapter 4, which is entering God's rest. And there's a whole sermon that could be preached here on what is God's rest. But the author of Hebrews is very concerned that we find it. He says in verse 1, we should fear lest any of us would fail to reach God's rest. What is God's rest? There are some reformed expositors, great men, men that I love dearly. They would look at verse 9 and it says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And they would argue that this rest that the author is speaking about in verse 4 is a Sabbatarian rest. It is the, it is making Sunday the Christian Sabbath. I would disagree. That is not what we are talking about here. It's not what the text is talking about. He is dealing specifically with God's rest. That is emphatic. This isn't just any old rest or somebody's rest. This is God's rest. It's His rest, that rest, my rest, God's rest. It is a rest that is likened to what God did on creation. If you'll notice in verse 4. On the seventh day, God rested from all His works. Which is really interesting because that describes a state of being for God. If you were to go back to the creation account, it's, it's very significant. On each day, it's marked by a morning and an evening. A morning and an evening, which in, is clear indication in my mind, we're talking about a 24-hour period of time. God created the heavens and the earth, morning and evening, morning and evening, until you come to the seventh day. It's not marked off as morning and evening. God rested from all of His works, and guess what? He continues to rest. So I think because it's not delineated, it is speaking about God rested from His work, and He is resting now. God is in a state of being, of resting, and we are called to enjoy and enter that rest. What is that rest? Let me simplify it by suggesting to you that God's rest is simply gospel rest. Gospel rest. When the author of Hebrews says, strive to enter that rest, he is referring to not the rest from creation, but the rest from redemption. Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, completed the work of redemption and cried out, It is finished. To Telestai, it's paid. There is nothing that you or I can do to add to the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot gain merit. There is nothing we can do to improve what Jesus Christ has done. The way you and I are going to be accepted in the presence of God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why you will notice... In this text, a number of different places, uh, it says that verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest, he has also rested from his works. Isn't that a gospel rest? We no longer work our way to heaven. Verse 3, for we who have believed, entered that rest. So this is a gospel rest. This is coming to rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's literally something, you know, you can just breathe easier. You're accepted before God, not on the basis of works. You've ceased from your works. Not on the basis of your good deeds, but on 
faith um, in faith and what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. This really is the key now to understanding verse 12, this gospel rest. It's huge. Notice verse 11 again. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's kind of a strange paradox, isn't it? Strive to enter that rest. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I preached through the book of Hebrews a number of years ago, and I have to tell you, when I came to verse 12, it really was one of the hardest texts I've ever had to study. I came to verse 12, and I was very tempted to do what you would often find with most commentaries and most sermons that I heard, and that is to take verse 12 in isolation and to preach about the Word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, which is, I heard many great sermons, read many great commentaries. And I was myself ready to do that. I had done my study, done the Greek, looking at the text, and was going to preach this sermon, verse 12 in isolation. But there was one little word that kept tripping me up. And it was the first word in our English Bibles. It is the word for. For the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is not an independent clause. Verse 12 is not to be taken in isolation to verse 11. It is a continuation of verse 11. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I read commentary after commentary to address this word for, to address the context, and no one addressed it. I listened, I'm tempted to say a hundred sermons. Somebody addressed this for, this context, because it didn't make sense. Strive to enter rest for the Word of God is living and active. And I struggled with that. I literally spent hours and hours just beating this thick head of mine, trying to figure out the context of this this, uh, verse. Finally, I, I saw it. Finally, the Lord opened my eyes. And when I did see it, verse 12 made perfect sense to me. It made perfect sense in its context. And, um, was a very precious verse to me. Some of you probably have already seen it. You say, duh, Tim, it's very very clear. Uh, Strive to enter that rest, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Others of you may be thick like I am, say, well, I'm, I'm not sure what is the context. Have you ever looked for something and not see it, and it's right there in front of you? If you're a guy, you'd have to raise your hand, right? Honey, where are the keys? They're on the desk. No, they're not. I'm looking on the desk. No, they're on the desk. Honey, I'm right here at the desk. They're not on the desk. Oh, they're there. They're on the desk. Right there in front of you. It's been there all the time. You looked, but you didn't see it. That's the way this was for me. I was looking at the text. It was right there all the time, but I never saw it. What is the connection between let us strive to enter gospel rest for the Word of God is living and active? It's really not fair. I'm going to tell you the connection. It's going to take me less than a minute to tell you the connection. And it took me probably 21 hours of mind-bending study to get it. just That is so pitiful that it would take that long to come up with one minute of a sermon, isn't it? What is the connection? Well, let me share with you just a brief illustration that I think will illustrate the connection, and then I'll share the connection. Some of you have children or had children, and you always know when they come to that age when they can use a knife. You introduce the butter knife. 
And then eventually a little sharper knife. They're using a steak knife. And what do you tell your children when they're handling a sharp knife? Be careful. That will cut you. Be careful I cut that apple. Have you seen your kids grab an apple and a knife and you're just like, oh, be careful. It will cut you. Here's the connection. Strive. Strive to enter gospel rest. For you see, the Word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it will cut you to pieces. It will shred you. It will destroy your self-righteousness. The Word of God is unrelenting in its exposing of the human condition. Strive to enter gospel rest. Because if you get around the Word of God, it's a dangerous thing. It displays all the righteous demands of a holy God. It is an inflexible standard. God never winks at our sin. It exposes us for who we really are, and you better make sure that you are found in Christ. That seems to be the argument here. Strive to enter into gospel rest because the Word of God is not something to trifle with. You get around a ministry of the Word of God where the Word of God is being faithfully uh, explained and taught, you're going to come under conviction of sin. You're not going to measure up. What are you going to do? Strive to enter gospel rest. Well, once you understand the connection, you're saying, well, yeah, of course I see the connection. Then we can start taking the verse apart and see see what it means. There, uh, There's just three divisions here. It says the Word of God is, first of all, living. Then it is active and is sharp. I want to look at those. And as it describes the Word of God and the ministry of the Word of God, we see these things build upon each other. They become more intense, more intimate, more personal in their application. So let's, let's look at how the ministry of the Word is described. First of all, the Word of God is living. The word living is emphatic in the text. It's at the very beginning. Living is the Word of God. Well, you want to get your mind around something difficult. What does it mean that the Bible is living? It's living. It's not just black letters on a white page. It is living. I read some commentaries and they said, well, living means it's interesting. One said it was lively. What does it mean to be living? Frankly, there are portions of Scripture that are not interesting. Leviticus, Numbers, you read those and it's not lively either. What does it mean to be living? This quality of Scripture is referred to again and again throughout Scripture. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23 that we were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, through the living and abiding Word of God. Living and abiding. Then he quotes from Isaiah 40 that says, All flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Isaiah says flesh comes and goes. Flesh is alive and then it dies, but not the word of God. It is living. It endures forever. It will be here for another thousand years, for two thousand years. It is alive. When the Bible speaks of itself as living, I think we could say very clearly it is a 
timely word. It is relevant for today. It is as alive today as it was a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, and it will be as relevant to life a thousand years from now. It is alive. It's timely, relevant for today. I'm sick and tired, I'm sure, as you are, as like-minded churches. I am so sick of this idea that the church needs to reinvent itself to be relevant for today. We have to be relevant for the age. Usually it means they're going to quit preaching from the Bible. They think that we live in such a modern, or I guess you could say postmodern age. We have special needs, highly complex needs, and we need to find another way to make the church relevant, which usually means talking skits and stories and interpretive dance, but don't preach the Bible because it's no longer relevant. That's not what the Bible says of itself. It says it is alive. It is timely. It is enduring. Notice the second thing then. Active. We get the Greek word, we get the English word energetic from this. It is effective. It's not only living, but it is effective. It is effectual. It is a living and active Word. The age of the Word of God has no effect whatsoever on its power. You know, as a preacher, I don't have to labor to make the Word of God effective. It is effective. It is at work. The only thing the preacher has to do is labor to make it clear, to make it plain, and then it does its work. Spurgeon used to speak of the the Scriptures as a tiger. You just have to open up the cage and let it out. You don't have to make it a tiger. It is a tiger. It is living and it is active. Effectual. It accomplishes things. Verse number 3. It's living active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's where this living, active word starts to get personal, starts to meddle in our lives starts to go places where we prefer not to let the Word of God go. Prefers, it, it, it exposes areas in our life that we prefer to keep hidden. The Word of God is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It lays a person open. It's like a surgeon with a scalpel who, who cuts open, should I say victim, His patient, that's a better word, cuts open his patient and goes right to the problem. That's what the Word of God is pictured as. It is living, it is effectual, and it is like a two-edged sword that goes right to the core of our being. Lays us open. Exposes us. And that's not a very comfortable place to be in often as a human being. To sit under the ministry of the Word and to see. It's like bright lights. When the bright lights are on you, you just see more imperfections. You know, when they transitioned everything into HD, I heard all of the news media had to put more makeup on because the HD just brought out more blemishes on the skin. That's what the ministry of the Word does. When it shines, it just shows every nook and cranny and exposes us for who we are. And I'll tell you, when churches say that we need to be more relevant, usually that's a code for, let's just ignore the Bible. 
Let's have more stories, skits. Let's use drama, have interpretive dance, band, incense, art, whatever. Just don't preach from the Bible. And they're doing that not because the Bible isn't relevant. They're doing that for the fact the Bible is too relevant and it makes people too uncomfortable. Because when you preach the Word, it will address people where they're at and it will make them feel uncomfortable. I heard the story of a pastor. It was a very interesting story. He, he was preaching systematically through the book of First Peter. And uh, he came to chapter 3. In chapter 3, the first six verses has that S word, submission. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And so as a faithful pastor, he, he preached a message on a wife's responsibility to submit to her husband. After the service, a woman in his church came up and she was irate. She was furious. She goes, what in the world are you doing preaching that stuff on a Sunday morning? She said, I have been trying to get a friend to church for years. And she came this Sunday. And she's an ardent feminist. And you're preaching about submission. What are you doing? She was irate. To her, it was a colossal failure. To her, it was a huge, bad problem. But when you begin to understand what the Bible says about itself, it was an incredible success. The Word of God is living, and it is active, and it goes right to the problem. I call those divine accidents, divine arrangements. That, that pastor didn't know that woman was coming. I, I've been in the ministry now almost 16 years. And I probably, when I first started out, I probably would preach texts and have somebody in mind saying, boy, I sure hope so-and-so's here to hear that one. But it didn't take very long for God to just kind of beat that out of me because I would have all these wonderful sermons that I would hope so-and-so would hear and they never showed up on the Sunday. I wanted them there. And literally, I got to the point, you know, I am not even going to try to preach a message for so-and-so anymore. I'm going to preach the Bible. It doesn't matter who's there. What happens, though, when you do that is God arranges things. I have seen it time and time again where you have sermons, you're preaching, and God comes and He, he addresses people right where they're at. The Word of God is living and it is active, it's effectual, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It exposes us. It exposes our heart and our problems. The fact is we don't really like that. Churches all across America don't like the penetrating message of the Word, and they're abandoning it. You know, if you, uh, you notice, we're, we're, a, we're a relaxed age. You ever seen old footage of sporting events, you know, 40, 50 years ago, and guys wore suits and ties to the baseball game and, and hats? And we are a relaxed age today, aren't we? I, for one, am, am thankful for that. I like the new styles out that have guys get to wear our shirts tucked out and it's in style. You know, you don't have to have your shirt tucked in all the time. I'm middle age. I'm not very stylish, but I like that style. Why? Because I'm getting a spare tire. 
And I like the shirt hanging out because it kind of covers the spare tire. You don't have to see my shirt tucked in and my belly rolling over my belt. I like the slim look of an out of a shirt. But what would happen if I come to church Sunday after shirt Sunday and people keep ripping up my shirt and exposing my spare tire? Well, you don't like that. I don't want people to see that. I want that to be hidden. And yet that's exactly what happens to the ministry of the Word where the Word is being presented. People are being exposed. Hearts are being exposed. It's not a, com- un- it's not a comfortable experience. It's often uncomfortable, convicting. You read the Gospels. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teaching is a perfect example of this kind of ministry of the Word. He is unrelenting in His ministry. You read through, as a church, we went through and memorized the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is unrelenting in the inflexible standard of righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. You look upon a woman and you lust after her, you've already committed adultery with her in her heart. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And you just have this inflexible standard that says, I can't meet it. There's no way. It exposes our shortcomings. It exposes how we cannot meet the righteous demands of God. Those of you that are the analytical types and... I seem to counsel a lot of guys in particular that are very analytical. Analytical people tend to be very introspective. And the more introspective you are, the, the, the crazier you can become as you examine everything you do. Is it, is, it, is it good enough? When you look at what this text says, that the Word of God examines, it, it judges our thoughts and our intentions of the heart. It judges our motivations. Then when... When God's Word starts judging our motivations, that's like judging our good deeds. And when your good deeds start to be judged by their motives, even our good deeds become filthy rags. You go to visit someone in the hospital. Tim, are you you visiting them because you love them and you want to show them the love of Christ? Are you doing it because it's your job? You share Christ with someone... Are you sharing Christ with them because you love Jesus Christ and you want to make Jesus Christ known? Or you want another notch on your belt? Those are the kind of things that analytical people, introspective people are looking at. And I'll tell you what, our good works can't stand that kind of scrutiny. The Word of God just will not tolerate a righteousness. The standard is so high, we can't measure up. What are we to do? Well, the text tells us we are to strive to enter gospel rest. When you look at what the Word of God does and how verse 12 describes the ministry of the Word of God, and then you look at how the Word is being used today in in the church, it's really a mockery, isn't it? We see the Bible being used as a handbook for marriages, a handbook for self-fulfillment, six steps to be a better dad, Five steps for a better family. Four steps to be a successful this, successful that. You start treating the Bible like that as a book to help me, as a book to make me feel good, as a book to help give me success in life. Guess what happens? The gospel becomes very trite. 
very inconsequential, very insignificant. It's something you do for kids when you're five to six years old, but when you're older, then you know you got more important things to do. But where there is a ministry of the Word of God and you sit under the ministry of the Word of God and it is a faithful ministry and the light begins to shine and you begin to be exposed for who you are and your pride and your self-sufficiency and your arrogance and your lust and, and your incompetency as a parent, as a husband, as a wife begins to be exposed. Let me tell you what, the gospel becomes very precious. It's no longer just trite or something that you assume. It becomes a balm to your soul. Once you understand the unrelenting ministry of the Word, then you understand the need to strive to enter into gospel rest. What do you do when you read the Word and it cuts you? What do you do when you sit under a sermon and it exposes you. It shows unbiblical attitudes. What do you do? You get mad at the preacher? You get mad at the church? You get mad at your spouse? You get mad at the kids? Kick the dog? What, what do you do? You go to the doctor and get pharmaceuticals for it to make you feel better? You strive to enter into gospel rest. The only answer is to come back to Jesus Christ. The only answer is His righteousness and His atoning death. To realize that you cannot earn your way to heaven. That it's not on the basis of good deeds or righteousness. That when the Word of God exposes your incompetency, exposes your sin, it brings you back to Jesus Christ. And the finished work of the cross. Strive to enter gospel rest. Let me just make a couple of applications by way of closing. And again, it's in the context. We are to strive to enter gospel rest because the Word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I want you to notice verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. What a terrifying verse. You look like a decent group of people. Nice families. Nobody looks like a raving reprobate. You probably come from a nice home, drive a decent car, you dress decently. Nice jobs, decent bank accounts. But there's coming a day when you're going to stand before God and all of that's gone. There will be nothing. You'll have no friends to vouch for you. You'll have no money to impress, no clothes as well. You're upper middle class. None of that will matter. You will stand before Him to whom you're going to give an account. You will be naked and exposed. Nothing. What are you going to do on that day? What are you going to do on that day when you stand before God? And all pretenses, we come here and you know, we, have, we smell nice, we look nice, we have a lot of pretense. Only the Lord knows our heart. But on that day, when we stand before God and He with His glazing, piercing eyes looks into our soul, what are you going to do on that day? 
We have a question that I like to ask my church regularly. I like to ask people off the street this, if we can ever turn the corner and speak about spiritual matters. Suppose that you were to stand before God and He say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What will you say? And it's amazing. You can get right to where people are at spiritually by how they answer that question. And if you answer anything other than, I have no right to be in heaven other than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for me. I should be thrown out of heaven, but I believe in Jesus Christ. That is the only gospel answer that should be there. Let me say this. I believe that the Word of God prepares us for the presence of God. The Word of God has a ministry of exposing our lives, exposing our sin, convicting us of our sin. But what does the Word of God do? It points us to Jesus Christ. When the Word of God exposes us for who we are, we are to strive to enter into gospel rest. We are to strive to enter into the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you practice that now. Do you think that today, if you are exposed by the Word of God, what do you do now? Do you blame someone else? Do you get mad? Or do you just become tired and say, you know what, I never will measure up. I just give up altogether. If you do, you are in serious danger. Because what are you going to do on that day when you stand before God? What will be your answer then? And if it's not Jesus Christ, you will not enter heaven We are given under the ministry of the Word an opportunity to practice for meeting God face to face. As the Word convicts us, as it exposes us, and I run to Jesus Christ, I can tell you that if I should stand before God's throne and He says to me, why should I let you into Him? It won't be because I'm a pastor. It won't be because of any shred of righteousness I have. It will only be Jesus Christ. And He's been teaching me that for 20-some years. I keep going back to Jesus Christ. So the Word of God prepares us for the presence of God. Notice verse 14. After describing the ministry of the Word, preparing us for the presence of God, isn't it precious how it begins to fit all together? Verse 14, Therefore, I love conjunctions. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the Word of God not only prepares us for the presence of God, According to verse 14 through 16, the Word of God drives us to a great high priest, a sympathetic high priest. You know, if this wasn't wasn't in Scripture, it would almost be too good to be true. Strive to enter gospel rest because the Word of God is sharp. It will expose you. It will convict you of your sin. Oh, but let that cause you to confidently come near to a great high priest. Not a high priest. He says, what are you doing here again? A sympathetic high priest. He says, I understand your weaknesses. Come to me and there's grace to help. What a precious, precious 
text this really is, the ministry of the Word of God. We probably have to ask ourselves, and it's another sermon, why don't we see the ministry of the Word as active in the church today? Do we see it convicting people of their sin? Are we preaching the ministry of the Word? Are we preaching the Word? But as we preach the Word, we must always bring the balm of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we can't grow tired. can't grow tired of striving to enter that gospel rest. You grow tired of that? Tired of confessing your sins? Tired of resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? There's a danger of that. You never go beyond that in the Christian life. You never come to a certain plateau and you don't need it anymore. But we stand in the gospel. So as you sit under the ministry of the word, I hope you'll understand what its ministry is. It's not to to stroke you. It is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will bring you under conviction of sin, but it is to draw you, drive you to the person of Jesus Christ. Strive to enter that rest. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for this text of Scripture. It's, it's been a joy for me to uncover this truth for my own soul. I've sat under the ministry of your word, Lord, and it has exposed me time and time again. Father, I pray that in this church, in this body of believers, where there is a faithful ministry of the word, that, Lord, you would use your word and use it with precision, that you would bring your people under conviction of sin but you would always point them back to Jesus Christ, that they would strive to enter gospel rest. Legalism and trying to attain a standard of righteousness is an awful treadmill to get on. You will never rest on the treadmill of legalism. You can only rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. May His name and His work be magnified this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.